now it's more important than ever, I think, to understand and acknowledge the rapidly accelerating rate of change due to climate change and what that does to those interdependent systems and how you support your operations and your supply chain and those connected with you. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. At our recent Renewable Energy Sourcing Forum, our Director of Education Programs, Peter Kelly Dittweiler, sat down with Jim Goudreau, Head of Climate for Novartis Business Services, to discuss Jim's unique journey in the energy industry, starting with a career in the Navy before transitioning to his current role at Novartis. Jim and Peter explore how Jim's experience in the Navy prepared him for his current role and his perspective on how to prepare your company to navigate the obstacles in combating climate change. You can find a detailed bio for Jim in the show notes for this episode. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, I'm Peter Kelly Detweiler. I'm Director of Educational Programs for Smart Energy Decisions. And with me today, I have the pleasure of having Jim Goudreau, head of climate for Novartis, the pharmaceutical company. Jim's got a really interesting background. So Jim, actually, if you could just do us a favor and introduce yourself for a few minutes, explain what you do at Novartis and and some of the background that informs your decision-making around the whole sustainability issue. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me as part of the, the program overall. This is certainly a fun discussion every time we get the opportunity to chat. And this is part of a, a broader batch of work that, that needs to move rapidly and, and is important work, both from a, a citizen's perspective and a company's perspective. So I'm happy to be here and involved. My background is a little non-traditional coming to the corporate world. Joined Novartis about four years ago when they created the position as head of climate. And it was the first time that they had had that. And Novartis themselves had been doing a lot of work in reducing carbon emissions and their footprint for over a decade had adopted a shadow price of carbon internally, had created natural climate solutions with four forestry and agricultural programs globally. So a lot of interesting things that had been going on. With the creation of Head of Climate, though, it took the work that they had done in carbon emissions reductions and climate mitigation and paired it with climate adaptation. So the focus is now in this role, a portfolio that includes reducing our emissions through a combination of efficiency, adopting renewables as rapidly as possible, creating a credible, transparent program of offsets, and combining that with the flip side of the coin on adaptation and understanding what the risks, what the opportunities, what the responsibilities are associated with climate for a company like ours. What are we doing with our emissions that's impacting the climate? What is happening that impacts our patient population? What's our responsibility to understand how a changing climate impacts the communities that we serve, the patients we serve, our associates, and not only in our own operations from a a discovery and delivery of medicine perspective, but also our extended supply chain. And so a lot of different things that are interdependent that we focus on 
and trying to move forward in, in a responsible way to look at where the industry needs to go and the company in particular needs to go. And I joined the company from the Navy after finishing up 26 years in uniform as a Navy captain. Excellent. And when you and I were talking about this before, you explained to me that you were involved at a pretty high level in the Navy for logistical and supply chain issues. Can you talk a little bit about about how that unique background prepares you for what you're doing at Novartis? Absolutely. And it's a combination of a number of things over the years. My trade, if you will, within the Navy was as a supply corps officer, a logistician for the Navy. And so I spent 21 years of my career moving parts, people, things, and money all over the world and gradually moving into global supply chain management positions. And at one point, I was the logistician in charge of all the movement of materials and personnel for part of the 7th Fleet in Asia, working on an admiral staff responsible for all of the expeditionary forces. So all the Marines and all the ships that move the Marines, anywhere from Hawaii to Vladivostok to Pakistan to the Antarctic. And so it was a pretty big operating area. And it happened to be in the area of the world where natural disasters routinely occur and spent some time boots on the ground delivering disaster relief in some of those areas and being responsible for the logistics and theater level support during some pretty big events to include the earthquake, the tsunami, and the reactor meltdown in Fukushima and Daiichi. Okay, so that certainly prepares you for dealing with, well, I mean, Novartis has, what, 100 locations or more on six continents around the world, and you're dealing with impacts, climate-related and other impacts right now. Can you talk to, to us a little bit about what that both adaptation and you know what your defensive strategies have to be. And then we after that, we can roll into maybe some of the green power purchase work you're doing. Sure. When you think about what the Navy and the Marine Corps were concerned about globally, it was, can you still operate? And what does it do to the people in communities? Does it create a situation where there may have been a stressed environment where there's a constrained resource? And does the change associated with climate then tip that system out of balance enough that it devolves into either economic instability, social and political instability, physical conflict? Those things obviously are core to the Navy and the Marine Corps business. And I'm still involved in national security discussions with a couple of think tanks down in DC that look at what's that tie between climate and national security and global security. And there's absolutely a connection. You take a look at the health component of that in the aftermath of increasing severity of storms, increasing recurrence of storms, what that does to the built environment, things that you take for granted, sewage, water, food distribution, transportation, logistics, economic support, labor markets, the social fabric of a community, those all build together to form resilience in a community. As those fall apart, when stressed by climate as a threat multiplier, not as an individual component of the issue, you start to see complications across all those sectors. And it starts to become a risk to the individual. You start to see viruses. You start to see vector-borne illnesses. You start to see the impact of climate refugees, climate migration. And the spiral then leads to lots of different cascading issues. And so when you think about how did that experience in the Navy as the acting deputy assistant secretary of the Navy for energy, looking at climate resilience and climate security, and also looking at 
operational efficiency and capability, it translates into the corporate world because at the end of the day, you have to know your mission. You have to know what to maintain to keep your mission going, what the purpose is, and then protect it, maintain and operate it. That's what any good corporation does. Now it's more important than ever, I think, to understand and acknowledge the rapidly accelerating rate of change due to climate change and what that does to those interdependent systems and how you support your operations and your supply chain and those connected with you, the communities that you serve throughout those changes. So you've really got to know where you need redundancies, where you can get by without it. And you have to think of that in a very, I would think, systematic way. Absolutely. From a discovery perspective, where's your research? And if you lose a lab here, does that research continue somewhere else? Do you have samples here that are stored somewhere else? Do you have suppliers that can can give you the material that you need in your supply chain? Traditionally, though, as a logistician, as a supply chain guy, if you have four, five, six suppliers, you think you're fine and you've built redundancy in. But what if all five of your suppliers are in the same geographic region? We've thought about that in the past in the national security perspective and diversification because of various physical risks. I think the pandemic recently has highlighted the impact. Supply chains for multiple markets and multiple sectors have had issues if there's a tight concentration of your supply chain in one geographic region that, for instance, was impacted heavily by the pandemic in one of the waves during one of those. So regional impact, regional disruption is what you really have to plan for. And whether it's climate change that causes it, whether it's a pandemic that causes it, whether it's some other event, really it's about managing disruption to the operation and maintaining that through whatever those circumstances are. Thank you. I was struck by our conversation around just how challenging that is. Let's switch, if we will, to, but there's something growing out of the, out of the back of your head there. It looks like a wind. What's, <laughs> what's, what's that? What's going on there, Jim? It just might be. That is a wind farm at Santa Rita East, Texas, which is one of the the first deals that Novartis closed to to move towards rapid adoption of renewables. And with this one deal, we're an off-taker for 100 megawatts of electricity from this wind farm. That takes care of all the carbon for our procured electricity in the North American market. So when they came online in June of 2019... We actually just had the one-year anniversary of the project coming online with its COD. That rendered us carbon neutral in the U.S. market for part of our operations with the procured electricity, which was really exciting for us. And it's it's important to, to have a foundation of efficiency and to do things like on-site renewables as well, where do you get resilience and business cost benefit. But big deals like this really start to move the needle and start to move towards decarbonization, not only of our business, but of extended supply chains and different sectors. So we're pretty proud of this and we're excited to, to be doing some more. How long did the process take from conception to pen on paper? And what was the internal process like of convincing folks that this was the right time, the, the price was okay, you could handle the risk, all, all those related issues that our, our audience would want to know about? The ideation started in 2016, about six months before I joined the company. And by the time I joined, we had picked our buyer's agent through the deal and moved into more developmental and project-specific analysis. We were able to move through the education process within the company 
starting in the fall, it started in 2016, but really more heavily engaged late fall of 2016, all the way through the summer of 2017, when we got approval from the executive committee of Novartis and were able to go back and, and get the final link on, on the deal. From that time, obviously, reaching financial closing was another big milestone for us before we announced it publicly. And we did that in 2018 when there was confidence that the deal would go through. And then June 19. So it was just shy of three years from a process-related perspective, which is not so unusual for a lot of companies, especially for the first time you do this. All of a sudden, it's a contract that instead of buying transactionally and either buying on the spot market for energy or hedging and then executing within a, a two to three year time frame, you start to talk about contractual structures that are 10, 12, 15 years. That's a big hurdle for folks to take a look at. And what is that risk exposure, especially as a European company working a deal in Texas, we're subject to IFRS. So when you start to take a look at exactly how you structure a deal, what your risks are, what you're exposed to, a company in the US may approach it very differently from a company based in Europe. But we were happy to be able to work through all those issues with our treasury staff, our finance staff, our procurement staff, our legal staff, and take it to leadership for final approval, thanks to some really passionate champions that we had inside the company. Thank you. I'm going to confess my ignorance. You just use the IFRS. What does that stand for? International Financial Regulation Standards. So it's basically a European version of GAAP, generally accepted okay. accounting principles. Gotcha. So companies in the US are under GAAP, companies in Europe are under IFRS. Okay, thank you. So you mentioned before that European-based, there are projects you're working on now in Europe as well? We are. So just as we decarbonized uh, our electricity in the US and Canadian market with this, we're actually, we went to the market and we're in the process of selecting a developer to be able to do a, a pan-European virtual power purchase agreement, which would take care of our own operations. It's a big step for us. Obviously, a lot of a lot of our business is concentrated in Europe from a production perspective and research perspective. But we're especially excited that we're starting to talk across our supply chain and find suppliers who are interested in thinking about an aggregated virtual power purchase agreement where we would go to the market and try to remove barriers and set up access to renewables for members of our supply chain, both in the U.S. and in Europe. That's that's an interesting concept. It's one I've heard some other of the larger buyers are thinking maybe they'll be able to play that lead sled dog role as well, which certainly could open up the market to a lot more players and get a lot more clean megawatt hours out there. Yeah, I think it's important to do that. A company like Novartis, we've got staff to be able to handle procurement and finance and legal issues. And while we may not sign as a direct off-taker for many of these new deals, we can help set up an umbrella structure that will allow smaller companies with their more limited resources to come in and plug in. Because I would I would much rather have them affecting a permanent and enduring change in generation capacity as a result of these deals, as opposed to going out and buying an unbundled rec or doing some other that if we as a as a buyer say, if you want to be part of our supply chain, you have to change what you're doing and lower your footprint. We'd rather help them do it rapidly across a big portion of their business than to force them to do it incrementally because we need big change. We don't need incremental change. It ties nicely into your philosophy of that duty of care that you were discussing with me before. So mm-hmm. I'll be looking forward to seeing where that goes. You also mentioned on-site. Where and what sorts of projects are you looking at and in the procurement stage 
physically located on properties you own? We've got a, a range of projects that we're looking at right now. We've had a number that we've looked at, rejected for a number of different reasons because it just didn't make sense in the market or at that particular site. We've got others, and it's a mixture of Asia and Europe and the US that we've looked at deals. Some are far enough along that it's in the permitting process and fairly long into the permitting process and hoping to be able to get through that, which when you talk on-site project development, obviously, you start at the very beginning of that process. You, you can't jump into it like you can with a power purchase agreement offsite where all the environmental permitting is done, all the approvals done, you know, a lot of that, that grunt work is done up, up front and you can compress that development timeframe. So that's been a big learning process for us as well. We've got a number of different sites, six locations in three major markets that we're thinking about it. So we're, we're going through the due diligence. It doesn't make sense. I mean, especially if you take a look in the US market, if we're carbon neutral for electricity, what's the motivation to do it? Well, obviously, if, can you get a business benefit from a cost perspective? Can you derive an additional quality component to your renewables portfolio? Can you build resilience in if you do a deal where you get to a renewable renewable microgrid, either installed on-site or, or close, close off-site? You know, these are the kind of discussions that as you select different possible projects, rank them, prioritize them, move this year or next year, or decide to, to table them, obviously that, that's what you should be focused on. Thanks. So one last question, and this one you piqued my interest before. You had said that you were helping, or the whole company, the sustainability and resilience issue was broadening and deepening across the entire leadership and more broadly. And I think the phrase you said to me was, ideally, I end up working myself out of a job. So Absolutely. what's that all about? <laughs> well, when you think about the position as head of climate, mitigation and adaptation, done correctly, what we need to do to invest in efficiency, shift to renewables or maintain our position in renewables, develop credible offsets, understand risks, manage risks, continue to operate there are functions within the company to do most of those things already. There's already strategy staff, risk staff, procurement staff, operations staff. So when you think about what this really means to reach maturity level within a company, the decision-making on a daily basis incorporates all the elements of climate risk and incorporates all the elements of environmental sustainability into how you design and deliver a product routinely. So if you can do that, you don't need a head of climate. You just have everybody doing their job and knowing it's the right thing to do and executing on a daily basis and running a profitable, sustainable business that consumers will have confidence in, that you can maintain trust with society because you're a values and purpose-driven organization. Excellent. Well, I wish you all the success in the world in making yourself redundant. Uh, and if you, and if <laughs> you do you. succeed at that, I have no doubt there are dozens of other companies that will be clamoring for your services. Thank you so much for your time and insights today. I look forward, and I think the audience will too, to watching your future continued successes. And thanks again for, for making the time available to everybody and sharing your insights. Great. Thank you so much. And you know what? I, I look forward, if the opportunity comes up, to come back and talk specifically about those supply chain options. That would be great. 
thank you to Jim and Peter for this rich conversation. We look forward to having Jim back on the show in the future. To our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. We're really excited about the first season of conversations with leaders of the energy transition and hope they help you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. 